0: is written and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations, acknowledging that sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Well, welcome to another episode of The Natural Philosopher, and it's the continuing series of me recycling talks I've given elsewhere, um, because they're kind of interesting. This, you might think, is a little bit left of field. Today's episode is entitled ET and the Anthropocene. Do aliens tell our future? So what I want to do is approach the problem of the Anthropocene, which, as you'll be familiar with by now, the impact of humans in general, and it must be said the Western world in particular, through a different lens. So consider for a moment the possibility that our galaxy contains other worlds where life has evolved and other civilizations have appeared. Have they faced the same problems we have? Have some of them successfully navigated their way through them? This episode examines this question as a kind of theological thought experiment. So look, I don't care whether you believe in aliens or not, it doesn't really matter per se, but it's an interesting scientific question, and for our purposes we're going to pose it as a theological thought experiment, and particularly based upon the work of physicist and theologian John Polkinghorne. His free process allows a theological understanding of an emergent, biophilic or life-friendly universe which is open to creaturely as well as divine causality. Or maybe we should flip that around the other way that it's open to divine causality as well as creaturely agency. Free process also permits an understanding of the Anthropocene as neither divinely willed nor a necessary part of the emergence of advanced technological societies. We needn't be in the situation that we're in. Instead, each stage of the emergence of new knowledge and technology can be viewed as a, quote, fall upwards, opening up the possibility of good and evil, flourishing or destruction. So, are we alone? Scientist Frank Drake first proposed the equation which now bears his name in 1961, and it was at a conference on communicating with extraterrestrial intelligences. The equation provides us with a guess calculated guess, of n, the number of potentially communicating civilizations in the Milky Way galaxy. The first three parameters in the equation are astrophysical parameters, so the rate of formation of sun-like stars, the fraction of these stars which possess planetary systems, and the number of Earth-like planets in those systems. The second group of terms are biological, the fraction of planets where life has evolved and the fraction of planets where intelligence has evolved. And the last two parameters are kind of multidisciplinary, if you will. The fraction of planets where a technological civilization capable of communication evolves and, the kicker, the mean lifetime of a communicating civilization. Now, while astrophysics and geophysics, so the physics of the Earth, volcanoes and plate tectonics, all those sorts of things, can influence both these factors, uh, these terms will be considered sociologically. In other words, where does a civilization go wrong? Now, the 1st in equation has been known since the 1950s, and it's about one star per year being born in our galaxy. And it's now likely that our galaxy contains at least as many planets as it does stars. However, one of the scientists working in the field, Mayor, who discovered the first exoplanet, that is, planet and another solar system, says that, quote, we still have little information concerning the constraints for extraterrestrial life That is, the frequency of Earth twins in the habitable zone. Now the habitable zone is the part of um, the space around a a star where liquid water exists because we believe liquid water is essential for life. Now this is a real issue because most, I think, of all the planetary systems that have been detected today seem very, very different uh, to our solar system with rocky planets close in and the gas giants further out. Yet, physicist Adam Frank places the number of stars where life as we know it could exist uh, as a a guesstimate of one in five. According to Paul Davies, who's written on this topic and many other things in physics and um, astrobiology, says that the key unknown is the fraction of planets where life evolves. At present, there is no one universally accepted uh, theory of the origins of life, and we have a... uh, one example that is our earth however three broad principles are often applied the first is the principle of uniformity of nature which says the laws operate the same laws operate everywhere in the universe the principle of plenitude and this seems the shakiest one to me says that whatever is possible in nature tends to be realized how do you know but anyway let's run with it for the minute and finally the copernican principle suggests that there is nothing special about our place in space So if our planet, why not others? Now it's interesting uh, that these modern ideas, and that the ideas of planetary formation, and the self-organisation of life are still in essence Epicurean. So we're going all the way back to the Greeks, in that matter in motion can result in the production uh, of other worlds and life. And while the process is no longer viewed as purely random like the Greeks thought about, it, or Fred Hoyle's famous junkyard fallacy, that said if you had a junkyard full of airplane parts, uh, a tornado could rip through and produce a 747, it's still entirely material and unguided, which is fine if you're an atheist, if you're a materialist, of course. Now, two observations suggest that uh, life may be common in the universe, and the first is that space is filled with organic molecules, the precursors to life. And you see that when you look at telescopes, and you see that in meteorites which hit the Earth, which contain these precursors. Secondly, trace fossils of bacteria date back towards the end of a phase known as the late heavy bombardment, which was the last time the Earth really got belted by meteorites. And what this suggests then is that life soon formed after the Earth's crust solidified, after being molten after all those impacts. Now, Paul Davies argues, however, that the formation of life is highly contingent and that our own existence is a form of the weak anthropic principle – which is a fancy way of saying that we're here to witness to the evolution of life and intelligence simply because there's been enough time to allow us to evolve, to do it. So it's a bit of a tautologist statement. In contrast, Stuart Kaufman sees life, agency and intelligence as what he calls emergent properties of matter, and hence a cosmic imperative. In other words, it's just it just is. It's embedded in the nature of the universe. Now his approach is atheological, in that he seeks to replace theism as the explanation of life, while at the same time reappropriating the language about God as what he calls the very creativity in the universe. Now, emergence for Kaufman is quite a complicated kind of uh, idea, but it's both epistemological, about what it is we can know, and ontological, about what is. In the former case, high-level order cannot be understood, described, or predicted solely with reference to a lower level description so for example he gives uh, this make, made up made believe example that you could in theory construct a computer simulation using the laws of physics to describe the evolution of the heart but only as a biologist only speaking in biological terms could you tell anyone what it was for so physics alone is not enough in other words he's saying biology does not reduce the physics Kaufman also believes that genuinely new things are produced by evolution. So he gives the example of the evolution of the lung, which I'm now using uh, quite heavily to speak to you. It evolved from the swim bladders of early fish, which is an organ that allows a fish to take its place anywhere in the water column. So it controls buoyancy. This is a classic example from evolution of what's known as pre-adaptation, where an organ evolved for one purpose, but then it's co-opted for an entirely different one. Lungs and swim bladders do not do the same thing. Now, of course, life without lungs out of water would be far less diverse than it is. So insects don't use lungs, but I do, and birds do, and reptiles do, and a whole diversity of life. Now, these novel novel consequences of evolution are unknowable ahead of time, according to Kaufman, because Darwinian selection, uh, the process that forces organisms to change in given directions, is due to selective environments, and he says that, quote... No finitely statable procedure which would allow us to enumerate all possible selective environments uh, exists. In other words, we can't possibly know ahead of time what is important in driving evolution or how the process will turn out. You can make comment about what happened after the fact, but not before. Given the almost innumerable possibilities of life, what actually exists on the Earth is a much smaller subset than what could have occurred. A good deal of Kauffman's argument relies upon the idea that the physical nature of the universe is not as important as the underlying mathematics. And the smallest computer on which you could run that mathematics is the universe itself. So therefore whatever exists is a genuine novelty because to get something different, a new result, you'd have to run the universe all over again. Now there's a different take to this uh, by uh, paleontologist Simon Conway-Morris, who also happens to be a Christian I met several years ago, and he sees convergence in evolutionary systems, which suggests that the pathways for evolution are actually limited and predictable. Conway-Morris states that convergence is, quote, The phenomenon, that animals, as well as plants and other organisms, often come to resemble each other despite having evolved from very different ancestors. Convergence demonstrates that the possible types of organisms are not only limited, but may in fact be severely constrained. End quote. The constraints are top-down from the environment. To give an example, the requirements of predation, that is catching and eating other animals, means that in large canines, the, the sharp pointy teeth, uh, evolve both in saber-toothed cats, uh, which are placental mammals, or were placental mammals, um, and of course their ancestors, lions, tigers, etc., and saber-toothed marsupial cats, which are related to kangaroos, etc., from South America, which of course are now extinct. Another and more theologically important example of convergence is the origin of intelligence. Leslie Rogers, in her book Minds of Their Own, observes that chimpanzees exhibit self-awareness Gorillas exhibit grief, and vervet monkeys demonstrate intentionality in communication. They can lie, they can give different calls for different predators, etc. However, intelligent behavior has also been observed in non-primates with different brain structures like blue jays and dolphins. So bird brain is not really an insult because jays and, and other coverts, crows, etc. exhibit high levels of intelligence. So what's remarkable is that very different neural architecture, which is a smarmy way of saying brain, uh, have produced intelligence. So Christian de Duve, and do I have a reference to the book? He says it in Vital Dust, Life as a Cosmic Imperative, um, says that let something like neuron a neuron emerge, and neuronal networks of increasing complexity are almost bound to arise. So if you get a neuron, you'll get a brain, you get a smart brain eventually. So then, are Kaufman and Conway Morris at odds? Is the biosphere potentially infinite or limited? Uh, Note that both believe in the underlying law-like nature of evolution relying on something known as self-organisation, which means that systems become more and more complex over time. However, Conway Morris believes that the result of evolution is unsurprising insofar as there are many features that arise again and again, as we talked about. Inherency and constraints of the environment mean that certain features will be, he thinks, inevitable. Meanwhile, Kauffman sees the future as genuinely open and emergent. So, can life, and ultimately intelligence, be both inevitable and yet also emergent and hence genuinely new? Now, Conway Morris seems not to be arguing that high-level phenomena are reducible, either epistemologically, in terms of what we uh, can know, or ontologically, in terms of what is, only that evolution is not only law-like, but predictable in quite general ways. So novelty can be genuine, yet constrained. It is, of course, hard to evaluate convergence with a sample of one, as I noted earlier, yet Conway Morris does extend this to life in the universe, Um, but nonetheless, so how do we then take that and give it, if you like, a theological layer to it? Well, that's what I want to do on the other side of the, the, uh, the program, invoking the work of John Polkinghorne, who's a, an Anglican clergyman, a theologian, and a former physicist who worked alongside Stephen Hawking. I think he was at university with him um, over the time, and I've heard him speak several times. So what he does, and I'll just start now and continue the second half, he provides a theological framework for understanding life in an emergent and convergent universe. He describes himself as a bottom-up thinker, which means beginning at what he calls the basement of particularity and generalizing. So you start with the the specific and then you generalize to the more general in both science and theology. And he often sees resonances between the two in terms of their methodology. And I think I spoke about that in my very first program. In both mathematics and religion, there was a sense of discovery and not construction. So he thinks that when we do theology uh, and when we do science, um, mathematics, you're actually discovering things that are already there rather than just making it up. Now, that's a, that's an argument that people make on and off, and there are some things that are clearly constructed and other things. Um, numbers, for example, or when Benoit Mandelbrot uh plotted the equation for his famous Mandelbrot set, if you've ever heard of that, and then looked at the deep structure and thought, wow, here's something that was there all along that I've just just found out rather than just made up an equation uh, and found it. So Polkinghorne believes that that's the sense. So there's a sense of discovery and not construction such that both maths and religion point to something beyond themselves in the case of the latter This is a transcendent spirituality, which indeed is God. And more on that and its relationship back to our question of the Anthropocene and ET in the second half of the program. Well, welcome back to the program, and we've been considering the issue of whether or not life exists on other worlds, and you may be asking yourself what the heck has that got to do with the Anthropocene, the destruction of our planet through climate change, etc. We talked about how evolution may or may not work, and the fact that it it may be very, very open, or it may be guided, or it may be in one sense a combination of both, where uh, there's a degree of both determinism and contingency. But we got to the point where we, we introduce the figure of John Polkinghorne, physicist and theologian. So when thinking about creation, so that's the theological way of thinking about evolution, uh, Polkinghorne views it not just as ex nihilo, or out of nothing, as people talk about Genesis 1 describing, which in fact it doesn't, but also creation continua, which is an ongoing act. And that, of course, is what evolution tells us in a... a um, a physical, material sense. Polkinghorne says that creation is allowed by and with its creator to make itself. And what this means is that creation is never finished until God brings it to its eschatological fulfillment. So the quote-unquote end times, and I've spoken in, in previous programs about that not meaning what people often draw it to mean in that kind of catastrophic, the earth burning up type sense, although that happens in, in a physical kind of that's called physical eschatology. But in terms of what the Bible's on about, it's it's not talking about creation coming to an end, but having a continuation. And so the process of creation is not finished until God brings that end about. Poggyhorn draws an analogy between the performance of a script versus improvisation. Uh, and so the evolution of or the emergence or. The development of life in on the earth and indeed the entire universe is a matter of not something that's laid down as a performance. You can hear here, of course, he's not a Calvinist in this sense, uh, but more an improvisation. And he, he sees that this improvisation implies that creation is an act of kenosis. Now, kenosis is a Greek word that comes from Philippians chapter 2, talking about Jesus' self-emptying. And so creation as kenosis is the idea that the divine makes room for the other as actor. In other words, the universe is not a puppet show. So again, this is this is not your, your kind of Calvinist, um, big R reformed view of things. Kenosis um, involves risk and cost as creation is a process that is open to creaturely causality as well as divine causality or agency. Of course, polkinghorn would agree that god has the last word death predation genetic mutations etc all these things about evolution are part of the free process of an evolving creation where god cannot quote be held to be totally and directly responsible for all that happens end quote and i know that um, people don't necessarily find that as a deeply satisfying solution to the problem of evil but Uh, What it does is it ties um, the possibility of evil and freedom of will and of process together in a way that doesn't make God directly the cause of any horror that you can list in your head, which I won't enumerate for any fear of triggering anyone on any particular issue. So this free process does not deny divine action. Now, Polkinghorne has his favorite phrase, apparently his wife used to wear on a t-shirt that says, epistemology models ontology. In other words, how we know things models what really is, Uh, not in an uncritical sense, because Polggehorn believes in critical realism. And so he says that the science of chaos theory, which is quite fuzzy, and quantum mechanics, which is definitely fuzzy, are not merely statements about epistemological uncertainty, in other words, we just don't know or can't know, but the fuzziness of reality itself, the fuzziness of ontology. And this fuzziness leaves room for the hidden action of God in a top-down causative manner. In particular, Polkinghorne sees information as the key. So again, we're getting to what Kaufman was saying about the fundamental nature of mathematics. And information can be expressed in, in mathematical ways. Now, God interacts, in Polkinghorne's view, in an ontologically open manner with the universe to determine its pattern of of future behavior. So a broad pattern, and here you can hear echoes now of um, of Simon Conway Morris's top-down causation of, of patterning and convergence, and yet still with a degree of contingency, so echoes then of Kaufman's openness. Polkinghorne puts it this way, that God is, quote, the boundary condition of the universe. And if you're a mathematician, then boundary condition will ring some bells for you. Such a universe is far more open to divine interaction and the bringing about of divine purposes than a strictly deterministic Newtonian universe where everything's kind of wrapped up in ironclad law and there's no fuzziness uh, to it. There's a further extension of this. The existence of God as the boundary condition, in particular in the form of divine mind. That is, God can think and can reason and is as we understand it beyond the physical, so we can think about God as divine mind, which hints at the inevitability of mind in the universe. So consciousness is still a bit of a riddle, uh, as I understand it, and so if there's the presence of divine mind, then Edward Oakes, a Catholic theologian, suggests that just as the limited number of aerodynamic streamlining of wings suggests the presence of air, I mean, there's only so many different wings on insects and birds and bats and so on that you can get that allow them to fly, So the convergent evolution of intelligence suggests the existence of what he calls the mental air, the presence of a guiding intelligence in the universe. Uh, So mind itself is something that's pretty fundamental. And other writers have spoken about this uh, in various forms, and I'll touch upon this in in future programs because I think it's a fascinating thing that bears uh, a lot on anything that we consider to be important. Potentially, then, the fraction of planets where intelligence evolves is quite large because the universe was brought into existence such that it would come to know itself. Now, I, I can't remember who came up with that phrase, um, but it we are a way of understanding the universe. And, and this is why I always think that while I understand in the ecological humanities and in um, ecotheology... There's a need to shift away from purely human concerns, and people talk a lot about being um, uh, ecocentric in their views. Our fundamental approach must be theocentric; that is, our fo- centre is God, the ground of all being, the ground of all relationship, and the ground of all intelligence and awareness, as we we see from or uh, take from this this position. But also, given that human beings can reason and re- uh, morally. and and can do theology and can have this exact conversation that I'm having, there's a sense in which we need to remain anthropocentric because we are the most conscious actors, if for no other reason than to limit our own stupidity, if you will. Which brings me then to this idea of falling upwards. So, here's a classic paradox. If life and intelligence are common in the universe, why haven't we heard from them? And there are lots of answers to this. This is known as Fermi's Paradox. Now Nick Bostrom is a philosopher who deals a lot in this kind of area and he defines what he calls the Great Filter as a probability barrier which, quote, consists of one or more highly improbable evolutionary steps, evolutionary transitions or steps, sorry, whose occurrence is required in order for an Earth-like planet to produce an intelligent civilization of a type that would be visible to us with our current observable technology. Now, gee, that's a mouthful. But what he says is that it's highly improbable that a civilization will get to the stage where we'd be able to tune in with our radios and hear what they're having to say. Because he ascribes self-destruction as a tendency uh, of all possible civilizations. So one of the many highly improbable evolutionary steps to a civilization that could communicate with the rest of the universe is, is the tendency to self-destruct. He sees this as being um, fairly, well, universal, if you will. And of course, we have the evidence for this in our sample of one, which may be influencing his decision-making, Homo sapiens, and that's the Anthropocene, as I've spoken about at length. So I've talked about this before. The Anthropocene can be measured by nine planetary boundaries, which measure uh, a safe operating space for our civilization. And Various researchers now are talking about the fact that we are drive we are a larger influence than astronomy and geophysics, volcanoes, and all the rest of it, and that we risk leaving the long term cycle of glacial periods to interglacial periods for what's known as a hot house Earth, that is hotter than it's been for a long, long time, and certainly hotter than human civilization can bear. Now, Frank, who we talked about earlier—that's his last name, not his first name—Frank. Um, believes the Anthropocene is just a part of evolution. He claims that, quote, Every civilization must be seen as a new form of biospheric activity arising from a planet's history of transformation and evolutionary innovation. In other words, we we are simply the Earth evolving into an agency-dominated biosphere. Um, which is what I just said before about a, a planet that's dominated by one species that can make decisions that can potentially destroy it or save it from ourselves. Uh, and that path is on to that one species being able to harvest the energy of the entire planet. And we've been doing that in terms of fossil fuels today, which is part of the problem. If all alien civilizations on their exoplanets face this stage of their evolution, I'll call it the exocene, surely at least one of these civilizations must have survived. So if a solution to the problem exists, then we can have hope because if someone else has done it, maybe we can as well. So the question remains, will aliens be able to navigate through their own exocene? And Paul Davies seems to think that they will be necessarily morally and spiritually superior to us, possessing a superior religion or moral framework. Spirituality, according to Davies, requires, uh, requires the use of self-consciousness and the ability to assess the consequences of our actions. Uh, and clearly we're a bit deficient in that. And yet theologian David Wilkinson disagrees, arguing that knowledge of God is based upon revelation and not merely spiritual evolution. And, and clearly it's got to be both, surely. Now, Simon Conway Morris is somewhat pessimistic about extraterrestrial civilization surviving because he believes evolutionary convergence says that they'll be a lot like us. And we know what we're like. So he thinks that we're still here because aliens have gone uh, bye-bye. They've gone extinct because otherwise they'd be here by now and we wouldn't have arisen because they'd have conquered our planet beforehand. In other words, the solution to Fermi's paradox is that sin is universal, or at least stupidity is, if you want to call it the same thing. Um. Mark Worthing, who's an Australian theologian, questions whether, given the likely existence of genuine moral freedom, we can simply assume that aliens would have misused their freedom. So we can't simply say that intelligence inevitably leads to free will, inevitably leads to the fall. Ted Peters, another theologian, gives qualified agreement and that he notes that Darwinian evolution implies that, quote, violence, suffering and death predated and partially defined who we are as the human race, yet, another quote, our social and psychological dimensions are derived from, though not reducible to, our physical substrate. What does that mean? We might have tendencies to go against the divine nature, but we don't need to follow them. Now, Polkinghorne understands the appearance of consciousness as a prerequisite for the struggle between the self and the divine pole, and the subsequent, to use the Latin, incurvitus in say or the inward-focused nature of sin. You know, I just think about myself, or my species, or my family, or whatever. That is, only a self-conscious and God-conscious being has the choice between following the self or the divine will. In other words, if you're not aware of God, and you're not aware of yourself, then you can't sin. Choosing the former means uh, inward-looking to creaturely desires alone, hence sinning. So Polkinghorne's view of creation in continua, um, ongoing, and free process is canotic or self-emptying in that in creating creatures with free agency, God empties God's self of being the only determinative will. There is a risk in creaturely freedom going against the divine will. Divine action and creaturely freedom can coexist in a way in which both are true to themselves, Creatures is free within their natures and God is free and unconstrained except insofar as God's self-limitation allows creaturely agency. So I can choose because God has permitted it. In turn, it distances God from being the cause of evil without distancing God from relating to the evil in creation, because of course God relates to to us at the very least if not all creatures. While Pockinghorn understands natural evil as part of the way the universe works, he highlights the ultimate importance of resurrection, which points forward to the, quote, transformation of this present mortal world. Following Irenaeus, the ancient theologian, Pockinghorn observes humans are on a journey from infancy to maturity and creation itself is incomplete. Now, here's where the Anthropocene comes into view. He understands all new advances in knowledge as a fall upwards, in a sense, precisely because the new and large powers open up the possibilities of good and evil. Now in this view, humanity's negative impacts on the earth system known as the Anthropocene is possible but it's not inevitable. To view as Frank does, that the Anthropocene is simply a stage of human development naturalizes it and removes our moral responsibility. Oh it just is, he says, "and, and that's just not on. He follows Kaufman in naturalizing God as the creativity of nature and the separation of what is from what ought to be. While emergence teaches us that every action has unintended and unexpected consequences, there have been many stages where decisions by the few have steered the course of the planet. None of these decisions are predetermined. Exxon did not have to lie about climate change. Politicians do not have to be self-interested or in bed with uh, big oil or whatever else. Um, you can change your diet, etc., etc. But in particular, power tends to lie um, in concentrated form, and that has the most impact. So Polkinghorne's understanding of creation in continuum or ongoing creation offers, offers kenosis as a model for an Anthropocene ethic. So then, here's the final theological bit. Just as God made room for the other in creation, and just as Christ emptied himself on the cross, so too we must make way for the other. Given also that creation is unfinished and at times chaotic, in the Anthropocene the earth will resist our efforts to interfere with it. The pushing of the planetary boundaries that have offered support for human civilization will ultimately undermine it. So are we going to make way for creation to be itself? Regardless of whether or not there's intelligences in the rest of the universe who've either done it or not, it's us here on earth who are faced with that choice. And as a Christian and theologian in in the making, I see Christ as the primary example, both as our um, reconciliation with God, but our opportunity in learning to give way for the other to reconcile ourselves with creation. So that may very well have been mind-stretching for you. I hope it was interesting. And as always, thank you for listening and God bless. You have been listening to The Natural Philosopher. This podcast was written and produced by Mick Pope. The theme music is from Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons, conducted by John Harrison with the Wichita State University Chamber Players and downloaded from the Free Music Archive. You can subscribe to this podcast on Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts and Spotify. You can also like and comment on my Facebook page, Mick Pope, Natural Philosopher.